It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one. Four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, July 9th, 2015. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dan. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking Good forward to, to our study. Good to be with you as well. And we're glad that you're here. Good to be with you on the other end of the line. The number to call is 877-381-4567. Email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. And the chat room is open to the bottom of your video feed if you're watching us live tonight. If you're listening to us in the podcast, we're glad that you're here. We encourage you to contact us anytime. Questions at collegeview.com. My father-in-law, Nick Law, this is a rare occurrence, back again. Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. He's a veteran. You're going to have to run me home, I guess. He's going to be with you. He's a certified board operator now. Yeah, yeah. You know, when your in laws have been with you for two weeks. Is that what you meant when you said he's certifiable? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But he wasn't supposed to hear that. All right. Uh, We're glad that you're here tonight. Look forward to the discussion before we start. A week and a half from tonight. Yeah. Uh, Not next Monday, but the following. So a week from this coming Monday night. The dates are July 20th and 21st. We're having our annual community Bible study here in Columbia, Tennessee. And uh, those of you who are regular listeners are familiar with our practice. We we moved to a neutral site here in town uh, last year and this year as well. We're using a well-known public facility here in Columbia called the Memorial Building. It's just two blocks west of the downtown square on West 7th Street in Columbia, Tennessee. If you're anywhere near to Columbia, Tennessee, if you can drive... if in any, any way at all, you can drive uh, to join us Monday night and Tuesday night, July 20th and 21st, at the Memorial Building uh, in Columbia, our community Bible study. This year's theme is the Christian's response to Islam. Okay. Bob Buchanan from Bowling Green, Kentucky, is going to present the lessons. And what we typically do is we just have a, a, about a 45-minute presentation, and then we open it up to questions from the audience. We, we typically take written questions from the audience. And Bob will respond to those uh, questions. Bob's well-versed on this subject. He's traveled all over the world, but he specifically has spent time in Malaysia and Indonesia, both of which are Muslim countries. And he has taught and worked with people who've been converted out of uh, Islam into Christianity. And so he's got some real practical background in this subject it's really, I think, a, a subject that we all need to be informed about. Uh, uh, obviously, Islam and Christianity are not harmonious religions, uh, despite what anybody may try to claim about that. We, uh, we teach and practice uh, considerably different things. Uh, Islam is, a, is growing. Uh, the numbers are growing. I did some st- statistics on this today, Jacob, and uh, by 2025... Uh, close to 2 billion people in, in the world will be Muslims. Close to a third of the world's population will be Muslims. Obviously, that, that's something we need to know about. And so this is an informative thing. We're not trying to be mean-spirited or hateful. We're, we're not going to be uh, trying to fan flames of, of, uh, of uh, animosity or, or anything like that. We're just going to be comparing and contrasting the Bible to Islam, Jesus to Muhammad, that sort of thing. All right. This uh, a week and a half away. Uh, Monday night, July 20th. Tuesday night, July 21st, 2015, 7 o'clock each evening, the Memorial Building in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about it on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. On our website, on our home, on our homepage at, at collegeview.com, you can follow a link that will take you to a flyer that, that describes the, the whole event. The whole deal. All right. Uh, Check it out. TheVirtualBibleStudy.com. If you're within driving distance or any distance, we encourage you to come. Check it out. Monday, July 20th, Tuesday, July 21st, 2015. All right. A program tonight I'm very interested in. 
What we want to do on our program tonight, Jacob, uh, we send our update list uh, a little late today. Uh, I've been a little earlier in recent weeks, but today I was late getting this out. looks like it went out just after 2 o'clock this afternoon to our update list. We sent out the theme for our discussion tonight, which is attitudes and actions that led to many of the religious practices we see in the world today. Yes. Uh, and then these questions were asked. If you're not on our update list, get on there by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Okay. Just say, add me to the list. We'll do that. Simple as that. Uh, here's the questions we sent out. Number one, erroneous attitudes toward the Bible are always at the root of apostasy. Comment on these false ideas. First, the scriptures are not inspired or infallible. Secondly, the scriptures are not sufficient. Third, traditions are authoritative. Fourth, the common man is not able to interpret the scriptures. Okay. Number two. Now you're saying those lead to some of the apostles. Those attitudes we see toward it. the Bible will lead to a whole divergence of different religious practices. If those things are true, then it's unavoidable that, are, that we will have a whole array of different religious practices if if we accept those premises as being true. Those are corrupting seeds, in other words. Right. Let those grow and you've got problems. Right, exactly. Number two, was the church perfect and complete in the first century? Did the church need modification or improvement in the centuries which followed? Okay. All right. Number three, when did just as an example, some of the things that came along changed over time. And so the, the rest of our discussion will be, what are some of the things we saw that cropped up that, that we don't read about in the Bible? Yeah. Uh, from the Catholic Church, when did they name the first pope? When did they claim that the pope was infallible? When did they institute celibacy for priests? Okay. Now, here's some things that are different. The Catholic Church is different in in those regards than other churches. I, I think some of those attitudes led them to do some of that sort yeah. of thing. Right, okay. Uh, number four, what's the history of instrumental music in churches? Yes. And then finally, number five, when was the idea of salvation by faith only first taught? These are some ideas, just, just a sampling of some ideas that came along I think we can prove after the New Testament was written, these things came along. When did that happen and why? All right, that's a good question for us to look at tonight. Important things. If if we want to be a church like we read about in the Bible, which is our aim, College U Church of Christ, to be the church like we read about in the Bible, if we find these things that came along and can be, well, I mean, what we do is we go to the Bible and we study it. We just do what it says. But when we see things in history that verify our interpretation of the scriptures, it's interesting to note, hey, we might be onto something here. If that's what the scriptures teach and history says, well, that's the way they did it, then uh, then our uh, approach seems to be verified somewhat. Yeah, and it's interesting that some of these issues, church historians are in absolute unanimous agreement about the practice of early Christians in, okay. in regards to actually some of the questions we'll be looking at here tonight. All right. Let us know your thoughts on those que- on those questions and join in the chat room as we go along tonight. Erroneous attitudes toward the Bible that are always at the root of apostasy. The first one you noted was the scriptures are not inspired or infallible. Chris in Atlanta, good to hear from Chris tonight, says the, this attitude that the scriptures are not inspired or infallible and in belief is usually held by those who are atheists, or do not like what the Bible teaches and want to excuse uh, an excuse to ignore those teachings. Well, it is held by atheists, but you've got some data that shows that it's not just atheists, it's religious folks as well. Yeah, uh, here's a quote. I think a lot of people who uh, are familiar with the Catholic Church or have studied with Catholics or are Catholics are, would be familiar of, of, with a, a, a resource called the Catholic's Question Box. And, uh, the Catholic's Question Box. And uh, here's here's a quote from that. Is the Bible the infallible word of God? The Catholic's answer is a decisive no. Indeed, it is only the divine authority of the Catholic Church that Christian it is only by the divine authority of the Catholic Church that Christians know that the scripture is the word of God and what books certainly belong to the Bible. The Bible is not its own witness. It's like a will without a signature or probate. It is infallible only because of and to the extent of the church's infallible witness. Wow. That deny the church's infallible witness and the Bible is at once reduced to the level of mere oriental literature and utterly devoid of divine inspiration. The Catholic Church alone guarantees infallibility, the authenticity of the Latin Vulgate, the contents of the canon, and the inspiration of all 72 books of the Holy Writ. 
They say 72, we say 66. Right, right, apocrypha, yeah. As St. Augustine would rightly say in the 5th century, quote, I would not believe the gospel unless it moved thereto by the authority of the church. Excuse me, I would not believe the gospel unless moved thereto by the authority of the church. Unbelievable. The Bible, therefore, is the infallible word of God only in as much as the interpretation of the infallible church makes it so. Yeah. And so, you know, it... As Chris in Atlanta, I think, correctly observed, skeptics, doubters, atheists, those who want to deny the Bible because they don't want to live by it, are certainly going to say the scriptures are not inspired or infallible. But what's interesting is those people wouldn't affect religious practice. In other words, an atheist, by rejecting the the inspiration and infallibility of the scriptures, he's not going to change anything that religious people do he's a non-religious person he doesn't accept the bible so he's not going he's not going to change what religious people do relative to the bible but somebody like the catholic church will catholic church is it has been obviously always extremely powerful in influencing the thought of religious practitioners and so when the catholic church comes along and says nah the the bible infallible no way decisively no they say and so then they can begin to, to bring in all kind of change. They're the arbiter of what's, a, what's a, a authoritative. Now, that's interesting. They say here clearly it's not the Bible, but it's the church that's authoritative. Yeah. Do what the church says. Don't do what the Bible says. And the, the church, church is only good in so much as the church says it's okay. The Bible is only good. As, as, yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. yeah. But so, that's, so, the, the, so the church is the authority. The scriptures are not. Now, that's interesting because I see in Galatians chapter 1 a church that had gone astray. And notice Paul's instruction to them. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ into a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Notice this, verse 8. But if even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other church doctrine to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. Is that what it said? Oh, church practice, let him be a curse. No, it says any other gospel. Yeah. The, the, the gospel is the authority, not the church's practice. The church was in error. Paul said, get back to doing what the church does. No, he said, get back to doing what the gospel teaches. And sure. so we see very clearly that that's an, an erroneous position. Uh, uh, to the church at Thessalonica, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The, the, Thessal- the church at Thessalonica didn't have the Catholic church around to verify to them that they should believe this. Right. The, the, the Christian, the, the, those converts at Thessalonica knew when they heard and saw the evidence, the evidence, by the way, of, of miracles by men, inspired men like Paul to confirm the word. They knew it was from God. They didn't need... They didn't need some organization to come along later and say, okay, it's okay to believe that, don't believe that, you can believe that, but that's not right. In, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches there. Five of them are in error. Two of them, no error is noted. Now, if I'm going to try and def- determine authority, which of those seven am I going to use? The Catholic Church says the church is, is infallible. Yeah. Which of the fi- seven is your infallible guide, and how do you know? Yeah. All right. I mean, it, w- it would be, it would uh, what you're suggesting there it would become a completely unworkable situation yes. if that was the case. All right. All right. All right. Uh, Let's grab a break, break and when we get back, we want to ask, we want to still deal with some of these faulty ideas, erroneous attitudes toward the Bible. When we get back, what about the idea that the scriptures are not sufficient? Not sufficient. We just don't have enough information. We're going to have to look elsewhere. All right. These, again, are seeds that lead to apostasy, and we'll note some of the apostasies as we go on in the program. But we're going to get a break, and we'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. 
I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College View Church of Christ. Do you have a question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said, or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com, and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931-381-4567. Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we'll do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight, or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon. Here's some quotes worth pondering. If one is to be led by human opinion, including their own, they should recognize that there is simply no human opinion that is not contradicted by other human opinion. God did not give us his word to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives. The heaviest thing to carry is a grudge. Bitterness is like a boomerang. You send it soaring out toward the person or situation that has wronged you, and it comes back. You're the one who gets hurt. Man, wish I'd said that. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. Back on the program tonight, talking about apostasy and uh, religious error, where it came in. We can find, we can see through history where certain doctrines got their root and where they began to be practiced. And if it wasn't in the first century, we contend that it is a practice that should not be followed. I think that's an important thing for us to emphasize. And we're going to talk about that more here in a minute, but... We believe Christianity was everything God wanted it to be. The church was everything God intended for it to ever be in the first century. Yeah. Therefore, if we come along later and we talk about something that didn't start until the 5th or 6th or 8th century, we're saying, well, wonder why. If it's the right thing, why weren't they doing that in the first century? When the inspired apostles were around, why weren't they? That's the point we're really driving at tonight. But... None of those changes and alterations could have ever come about if people had maintained right the right attitude towards Scripture. We're talking about some of the erroneous views. There had of to be a fertile soil for these uh, these uh, errors to come into place, and uh, we're seeing some of those here. With what you've noticed right off the start is that the Catholic Church does not believe the the Bible is the infallible inspired Word of God. They're not the only religious group who holds that view. We've talked to folks in the Presbyterian Church, for instance. Many people today, in this postmodern approach that people have to the Scriptures, they say there's really no way that the Scriptures can be uh, viewed as infallible and be our ultimate standard. And so we get to move and change and, and do whatever we want. Uh, homosexual marriage, homosexuality, anything goes. You think it's okay. You think it's right. You do it. Well, you don't get there overnight. You get there with these seeds of uh, of of these views that are not in line with what the scriptures teach. Yeah, so we talk about the idea that the scriptures are not inspired or infallible. That was that's one erroneous attitude that leads to apostasy. Another is that well the Bible's pretty good, but it's just not enough. It's okay. not sufficient. It doesn't get the job done. Okay. Uh, got a quote here from a fellow named E. R. Hull. What the Catholic Church and is and what she teaches is the name of the, the book. And he says, The New Testament does not bear the marks of having been drawn up to serve as a code of Christian belief. Neither does it anywhere direct us to take, the, to take Scripture as our sole rule of faith or free us from the obligation of believing more than is clearly taught in its pages. Therefore, to assume that the Bible is the sole and adequate rule of Christian faith may perhaps be the only alternative left after rejecting the authority of the Catholic Church. But neither Scripture nor history seems to afford any warrant for such an assumption. That's pretty straightforward. In other words, where does it ever say? The Bible never told us that they just take this and, don't, and, and nothing else. Well, but I think it does. All right. What do you think? Let us know your thoughts in the chat room. Chat room uh, is deathly quiet. Dead as a doornail tonight. Jump in there, y'all. Let, let us hear from you. Well, all right. Now, I see something different from what the Catholic Church is espousing there. For instance, in Second Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do I need a church, the church to tell me what is a good work? 
Yeah. Not I, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Yeah, I, I know that somebody could quibble with us that the scripture that Paul's talking about there has to be Old Testament scripture, but I think the principle that he's stating about scripture, scripture means things written mm-hmm. by inspiration of God, God breathed. Yep. Therefore, all things written by inspiration of God would carry those characteristic uh, marks yeah. of being right. complete. Second Peter 1, verse 3, uh, Peter uh, says, Second Peter 1, 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Notice, he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. James chapter 1, verse 25, refers to the scripture as the perfect law of liberty. Yeah. So uh, we, we believe that the scriptures are absolutely sufficient. If we will allow it to do so, if we will be honest and open to it, the scriptures address every conceivable thing that might arise in our lives. The the principles for dealing with those things are in the Word of God. Someone says, "Well, what do you mean? Uh, they didn't they didn't have the internet mm-hmm. when the Bible was written. So how so the Bible doesn't address how we're supposed to use the internet." Actually, it does. Right. When it teaches us things like purity of heart, right. honesty, integrity, and virtue, the principles set forth in the Word of God are applicable to every possible thing that we might be get ourselves into. All right. 877-381-4567 if you'd like to comment tonight. Again, we're seeing seeds here that uh, make uh, for fertile ground for apostasy to begin and religious error to be introduced, the first being that the scriptures are not inspired or infallible, the second being that the scriptures are not sufficient, that we need more. And then, uh, uh, and and, and Chris Chris says the Catholics teach this, the scriptures are not sufficient. They claim the Bible does not teach scripture is sufficient. Rather, it teaches scripture, sacred tradition, and magisterium of the Catholic Church. They misinterpret lots of verses to get here and rely heavily on early church fathers and their writings. They do not claim them to be inspired, but extremely important, those early writings of the church fathers. By the way, we had a uh, recent virtual Bible study on the writings of the early church fathers. If you want to do some research on that, uh, we we did a whole program on that I think might be a useful resource. All right. So these these are bad things. For people to suggest the scriptures are not inspired or infallible, the scriptures are not sufficient. And then compound that by taking the view that there are other sources of authority. For instance, tradition serves as authority. Right. Uh, the, the Catholic Church has always done that. Uh, here's a statement from the Council of Trent in the 16th century, okay? The unwritten traditions which we receive from the mouth of Christ himself by the apostles or from the apostles themselves have come down to us as if delivered from hand to hand on an equality with the books of the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, unwritten traditions are on on an equal plane with the things written in the Old and New Testament. Unwritten. It's not even in the Bible. These are just traditions that have been handed down. Yeah. Uh, in the Catholic question box, it says it would be well to remember that the Bible was never intended to take the place of the living, infallible teacher, which is the church, but was written to explain or insist upon a teaching already preached. The Catholic Church, a divine, living, infallible voice, guarantees to everyone not merely the written word, but also the unwritten teaching of divine tradition. So what about that? Well, uh, basically, that's the idea. And the, and the Catholics are not the only ones who say this. How often when we talk with people and say, well, it's just what we've always done. Yeah. You know, why do you do that? Well, I mean, by what authority did you do that? And it's not uncommon for people to say, well, it's just what we always did. Yeah. And they, and so not only the Catholics teaching authority of tradition, but, but that idea teaches it as well. Yeah, Nick, you heard that before. I mean, that, that people are justifying what they do because, well, it's what we've always done. It's uh, consistent with what we're doing now, and so it must be okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just you know, when we do things for a long time, we may just be doing them because it pleases us or some other group of people, and uh, that certainly is not a place for us to go to for our authority. I heard Bill Hall preaching on uh, on 
a certain type of apostasy and how people justify it. And I liked what he said about it. He says something is not right because it's consistent with what we're currently doing. Yeah. And that and that's what a lot of justification. I mean, we're hearing it even in things that are going on today. People are justifying what they're doing because, well, we do this, so, and so it must be okay to do this. Uh, so, yeah. You know, the, uh, Nick, I know you've probably heard that story about the the, the newlywed couple and uh, the husband was observing his wife preparing a ham dinner, and uh, she got the ham and she cut the end of it off and threw it away. And he said, "Why'd you do that?" And she said, well, that's what my grandmother, I always saw my grandmother do that. That's what she always did. She always cut the end of the ham off and threw it away. He said, well, I don't think that's right. He said, I don't understand why you would throw away this good meat. Why would you throw away the end of the ham? He said, let's call your grandmother. So they called her grandmother, and she said, Grandma, didn't you always cut the end of the ham off, throw it away when you were making a ham? And she said, well, yes, I did. She said, well, why did you do that? She said, well, the reason I always did it because I didn't have a pan big enough to put a ham in. I had to cut it down so it fit in the pan. And, and, but it's what, in other words, it's always been done. And so it's assumed that that's what you do without any thinking, you know, without any putting any thought to it. And people do that religiously all the time. All right. To Chris in uh, Atlanta says that uh, Catholics often, uh, Catholics and others often incorrectly use 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Luke 10, verse 16, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so there are traditions that are mentioned there, but notice how they were transferred to the Christians, not by handed down by some kind of uh, undocumented history. They were handed down by the gospel. They were by word or our epistles, what the apostles taught. So I was going to make that point, too. Their tradition, we find the concept of tradition in the New Testament. But those are the traditions that came through the inspired writers of the New yeah. Testament. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, you know, a little caveat there. We, we, we acknowledge apostolic tradition, yeah. but the tradition that has come in the centuries that follow is what we're arguing against. As, a, as any source of authority. Here's the error with following traditions. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, verse 12. So this is the letter to the church uh, at Pergamos. And verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, I can go back in history and find tradition of holding a, to the There was a tradition of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans and those who are holding to the doctrine of Balaam to commit idolatry and fornication. There's a tradition. Now, why would I not follow yeah. that tradition? If well, that's tradition what is they were minded? doing. It's what they were doing. Yeah. Why wouldn't we follow that? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the problem you'd run into. If you begin to say tradition is authoritative... Then you got the huge question of which ones? Which one? And how would I know? Vast and varying, yes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if we notice also the traditions that are handed down by God, like First Corinthians 11, you know, Paul says keep the traditions. So, and if you read uh, verse 23, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, for example. He said, "For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you." So he received it from the Lord through the Holy Spirit's direction, and, and we can read it in the Scripture. That's how the traditions of God are handed down. So there are traditions of men, and there are traditions of God. Exactly right. All right. Exactly right. Well, it's getting close to time for break. Can we sneak, sneak in the last one? The um, man is not... Uh, what about this idea? Yeah. Another fallible idea is that men, common men, just average men, are not able to just read their Bibles and understand it. Uh, here, here's a quote... Uh, from the Council of Trent, again, in the 16th century, the Catholic Church, in matters of faith and morals, and whatever relates to the maintenance of Christian doctrine, no one confiding in his own judgment shall dare to wrest the sacred scriptures contrary to that which, which has been held and still is held by the Holy Mother Church, whose right it is to judge of the true meaning interpretation of the sacred writ, or contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations should never be published. Now, how dare Translate. you? How dare you try to think that you you can understand the Bible and understand it at odds with what we say? 
You're just you're not capable. Yeah. Of that don't even try. In it. other words, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out for you. Yeah, exactly right. All right, and and, and of course, the the scriptures tell us that we are supposed to study, to know, to understand. Um, in Ephesians chapter three, this is a passage we've referenced many times in the virtual Bible study. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians chapter three. By revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He says, you read it, you can understand it. In fact, we're even commanded to understand it in the same epistle, Ephesians 5.17. Be not under unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We're commanded to understand. Yeah. Obviously, we can understand. All right, here's Chris's response. Some of this may be from, uh, from uh, laziness. Some teachings are hard to understand and require work. Others may incorrectly use Second Peter chapter one verse twenty uh, that says, "Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation." Uh, and then he says, "But first, or Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen, which mentions." Timothy, knowing this, uh, though he says that, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says that clearly teaches we are to study in order to show ourselves approved. This implies that we can read, interpret, and understand God's word. I think that's exactly right. And so the very, the very suggestion that we can't, and again, that's that's historically the Catholic Church has done that, and other and other churches as well. Uh, is just fallacy. But all of, so what we talked about, we've taken too long to talk about this, Jacob, but then uh, we've talked about erroneous attitudes that lead to apostasy. The scriptures are not inspired or infallible. The scriptures are not sufficient. Traditions are authoritative. And the common man is not able to interpret the scripture. All of those are big problems. All right. We need to get a break. When we get back, we'll continue the discussion. Was the church perfect and complete in the first century? Is it acceptable to follow the pattern that we see in the first century? Uh, of the New Testament church. Let us know your thoughts. We'll get this week's bullet point, and then we're back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. An old joke tells of a fellow who had a blind date with a young lady. He spent the whole evening talking about himself. Finally, near the end of the date, he said, I've talked about myself enough. Now you talk about me. Wow. That's the first and last date for that guy. Unfortunately, that joke is played out too literally these days. Seems folks have lost the skill of common and courteous conversation. So often people spend most of their time talking about themselves, their families, their activities and interests and so forth. Have you noticed how seldom certain individuals ask about you, your work or your family? This self-centeredness has been encouraged and promoted on the pages of social media. Facebook and similar sites are overrun with people talking about themselves, posting flattering pictures of themselves, telling about their own achievements and those of their children and relatives. There's a new narcissism that exceeds anything ever seen before. God's Word warns that a person is, quote, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, Romans 12, verse 3. We are urged to, quote, consider one another, Hebrews 10, verse 24, and to do things that will, quote, edify one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. We should, quote, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, Philippians 2, verse 4. Paul's example was of one who was, quote, not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. Personal pride and selfish arrogance have no place in the heart of a Christian. Let's be careful not to follow the current trend of selfism. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the Virtual Bible Study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, where you'll especially want to visit our website to find out more about our upcoming Community Bible Study, July 20th and 21st, 2015. Find out more there at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Just a little over a week away, a little over a week away, Monday and Tuesday night, July 20th and 21st. Be sure and and, uh, check that out on our website. And if you're within a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee, by all means, try to get here. Join us for a study of the Christian's response to Islam. All right. We're talking about uh, origins of religious error on the program tonight. And we can see from uh, history that uh, there were these seeds of uh, of apostasy that were starting to sprout. 
that the scriptures were not inspired or infallible, that the scriptures were not sufficient, that traditions were, on the other hand, authoritative, and that common man could not interpret the scriptures. Just if you looking at that list, I mean, you can, it just is outrageous. You see, scriptures are not infallible, but traditions are basically infallible. But you, but you can see where that's going to lead to all kinds oh, of divergent yeah. practices. So yeah. that's, that's, let's go to that real quickly. I think an important question to ask was, the, the, the New Testament was obviously completed in the first century A.D. Right. You know, you can dispute when the last book was written, uh, but nobody argues that anything in the New Testament was, was later than the end of the first century okay. A.D. right. Now, was the church in that time frame all that God wanted it to be? Was it perfect? Was it complete? Was it entire? Um well, let me start the, the the argument or the discussion, Jacob, and probably it's an argument, by going to John 16 and reminding us of the yeah. promise that Jesus made to his apostles. Yeah. In John 16, beginning verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. really want to emphasize that to the apostles was the promise that they would be guided into all truth. Mm-hmm. Well, that obviously had to happen. It's a promise from the Lord. Right. So in their lifetime, all truth was out there. There wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't that. What were we reading here a little bit ago? Uh, uh, we're going to see some more of this. Some things came along later and changed. Something different. Well, if it was truth, the apostles knew it. And they would have instituted it into the church of the first century. I'm not arguing that on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, that that everything was known that would need to be known to make the church everything God wanted to be uh, on the very first day that the church existed. We don't know how much was known. There was a lot. But that revelation continued. but But clearly, within the lifetime of the apostles and in the first century, all truth was revealed. And therefore, every, everything God wanted the church to be was known in the first century. It was perfect. It was, it was, it was according to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, says that uh, it was God's eternal plan. He said, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was according to God's eternal divine purpose. All right, we really have two alternatives here. Either the first century church was what it needed to be in the first century, it was perfect and complete, or else it wasn't. And if it wasn't, then how do we know what it should be? Do we have to have the church determine that for us? Do we have to have traditions to tell us what it should be? Well, but that's what they're saying. That the, Those things that we were just talking about, earlier in the program are why people think they could change the church okay right and, and so but if if that is the if that is the decision well the church wasn't everything it needed to be that we didn't have all the instructions that we needed in the in the scriptures then you are open to you've got to have traditions you've got to have someone determining what's truth because you can't get it from the scriptures that's your only two alternatives yeah. either it's complete and perfect or else it's going to be fluid and dynamic and it can change with the wind, and you can have every wind of doctrine that you have in the religious world today, and you basically can't put your foot down and say, no, that's wrong, because, well, the church wasn't perfect in the first century, so they weren't right on homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And we remember when we talked to the Presbyterian preacher a couple of years ago uh, who said that he even knew more about human sexuality than Jesus himself than, than the Creator. So, I mean, that's where you're going with that's that. What, that's the door you open. Yeah, that's where you're going. Okay. All right. Nick, do you have a thought? Uh, Paul is telling Timothy in Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 17, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished. Either Paul knew what he was talking about or he didn't. He did. That's right. Exactly right. <clears throat> All right. All right. So, now let's talk about some of these innovations then that came because people didn't didn't accept that they, they don't accept the scriptures as being complete and infallible and sufficient they 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 believe that their own traditions supply a, a, a source of authority 
They, they believe that average people can't read and study and understand the Bible. They do not think the church was all that it needed to be in the first century. So what did they do? Well, they started bringing in some stuff. Yep. They, they started innovating and changing, adding to the things that we that we read in the Bible. By the way, did we miss something we in missed, our email from Chris? Chris, Chris uh, on the church being perfect in the first century, Christ established a church. He would not and could not establish a church lacking. We have all we need in the Word, which was delivered in the first century. He references 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10 says, But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. He's referencing the fact that the Word was God's perfect revelation and complete revelation. It had everything that we needed in it. The Scriptures teach that and claim that, and we believe that it is true that the Scriptures are all that we need. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Chris. Um, all right. So, what did what were some of the things that came in? For instance, the Catholic Church named a pope. That didn't that didn't happen in the first century. In other words, if this was if this was according to God's plan, uh, then it should have been something that happened in the first century. But in the first century, what we read instead of a hierarchy of church government is that we read, for instance, in Acts chapter fourteen. Uh, in Acts chapter 14 at verse uh, 23, they ordained them elders in every church and, and so forth. There, every church was independent, autonomous. There were elders in every church. First Peter 5 verses 1 through 5 tells us that the authority of the elders was limited to the church where they were, the flock that, they, that was among them. Every church was independent, autonomous, self-governing. There, were, there was no hierarchy of church organization larger than the local church. But now we see something like the Catholic Church. We're being pretty hard on the Catholics tonight. Catholics are just a good illustration of the point, but plenty of other religious groups do this as well. A whole hierarchical system of organization in the Catholic Church leading all the way to the Pope. Yeah. Not independent, autonomous local congregations, but a, a completely interwoven uh, organism a, a worldwide organization. Well, that's not in the Bible. I'm, I'm, I know. I mean, I've read that thing enough to know that that's not in there. So it wasn't true in the first century, but it came along. When did the, for instance, when did the Catholics get around to naming a pope? Well, I think most historical sources will tell us it was around the year 600 or a little after that even. All right. Uh, there were some. There were some attempts to do it in the late 500s. But it was in the early 600s when the Catholics officially named their first pope. Five to six hundred years after the church began. Well, wait a minute. Why would it be that? Why would it take that long? Yeah. If the church was everything that God wanted it to be in the first century, why would it take that long for it to come about? All right. Uh, Chris says uh, they would claim Jesus named Peter, but in actuality, I think the first pope was named in the early fourth century. I may be way off here. I think it was well, actually Chris the, gives him a little bit the Catholic Church a little bit too much credit. It was yeah, a, little a little later bit, than that. Nick, what do we say? Don't we say Boniface, Boniface the first was six oh six? Wasn't that when I, he was first? I named think up? that's correct. Yeah, six hundred. Yeah. So I mean, again, that's a, you stop thinking about it, that's a long time coming. You think about things that were just so. If that happened around 600 and the New Testament was finished in the late first century, so 500 years after the New Testament was finished, the first pope was named. 500 years had transpired. 500 years—that's a lot of—that's a lot of time. What was 500 years ago from right now? Oh yeah, back in the 1500s. Yeah. You know, the people were just coming out of the Dark Ages 500 years ago. Yeah. How how is this that that it would take that long if if it's what God wanted? How is it that it could take that long for it to come about? That's the question we're asking. All right, let us know your thoughts. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Well, the McCords are in the chat room tonight and breaking the uh, well the deafening silence there. Thank you for your comments. Uh, uh, their comment is the end of First Timothy chapter three verse fifteen says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That doesn't mean that early Christians were perfect, but Christ established his church, and it had the whole truth to light its path. I think that's right. Thank you for those comments tonight. Let's grab our last break, and then we've got to hurry to the top of the hour and talk about some of these other things that came along and when they came along. All right. We'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Are you listening? 
There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent study shows that the lifespans of popular musicians are roughly 25 years shorter than the average. Dr. Diana Kinney looked at 12,000 popular musicians who died from 1950 through 2014 and found that early death was common. Kinney said, quote, The culprit is a culture that glorifies outrageous behavior by emotionally immature adults. That information is via the weak. God's Word says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back Battery. on the program, going to the top of the hour, uh, talking about religious error, where it came in. We can see through history how the seeds were planted for the error to come in. We can see also where the error actually did come in. And the question is, is it, was the church what it needed to be in the first century? Are the scriptures infallible, or do we need something else? Is the church designed to be a fluid, uh, ch- ever-changing uh, system, uh, uh, organization, or do we follow the pattern in the first century church? And if it's not a rigid thing where we follow the pattern of the New Testament church, then where do you stop? And that is a question that has to be answered by for those who think that we can change with the wind. All right. Talking about how how those bad attitudes led to a lot of changes, and we're just we're really scratching our head as to how anybody could think it was right to name a pope, or how about the idea that the pope is infallible? Yeah. Now, now, if you were going to name a pope, it looks like you would whatever attributes you ascribe to him would would have been so from the beginning, but. The idea of papal infallibility came along way later. Here's a quote from the from uh, the Vatican Council of 1870. Yeah. Now this is recent history, basically. 1870. 1870, less than 150 years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, here's here's what the the Vatican Council of 1870 said. This is the declaration of papal infallibility by Pope Pius the Ninth. We, the Sacred Council, approving, teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when speaking ex cathedra, that is, when discharging the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith and morals to be held by the universal church. He, by the divine assistance promised him in the blessed Peter, is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed the church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith and morals, and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. But if anyone, which may God avert, presume to contradict our definition, let him be anathema. Whoa. So, but they didn't decide that till 100, just 150 years ago. Popes had been around for 1,200 years. And but finally, in eighteen seventy, said, "You know what? That that pope is he's infallible when he speaks ex cathedra." That I, I want to tell you, people that ought to cause people great pause. If you're if you're in the Catholic Church, are you content with the idea that you can just arbitrarily change things whenever you want to? Because that's basically what they're doing here. Yeah, there's some. You've got some. Uh... Some very interesting uh, examples of that. In 1088, uh, Pope Paschal the Pascal, Pascal, Pascal the second, maybe I don't, I'm not sure how you say that. All right, authorized dueling. In 1509, Julius the second forbade it. Now, which one was right? <laughs> but once it was okay, and then uh, uh, about 500 years later, 450 years later, another one said, "No, you can't do it." Dueling. One one pope says. Have a duel if you want. <laughs> and the next one comes along and says, no, no, we, we will not have dueling. <laughs> Who's right about that? What about that, Nick? Uh, I don't know. Well, I know James says double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So I guess if you got two men speaking two different things, they can't both be right. Yeah, yeah. In, in 1585, 
Pope Sixtus V published an edition of the Bible and by a papal bull, which is, in other words, an authoritative instruction, recommended that the Bible should be read. That was in 1585. But Pope Pius VII came along and condemned any who would try to read the Bible themselves. One said read it. The other said don't read it. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, Amazing. And so we just... Oh, here's a good one. In 1520, Pope Urban VIII excommunicated the famous Italian Galileo and put him in jail because he taught that the earth was round and revolved around the sun. Popes today say that that Pope Urban in 1520, was wrong for condemning the teachings of Galileo. Of course, the teaching, Galileo was right and the Pope was wrong. But what about Popes being infallible? Unbelievable. All right, uh, Chris in uh, Atlanta says, there was mention of it in the Middle Ages, but it was defined dogmatically in the late 1800s. You're right, Chris. Thank you for that comment tonight. All right, and then one more thing from the Catholics. Celibacy of the, of the priests. When did that come along? Wait, uh, Chris says it was done in 1139. He's got a little different time than I do. Uh, I've got 1073, so uh, we're, we're within Never 100 takes, years. Yeah. Uh, I've got celibacy first enjoined at Rome by Gregory the Seventh in 1073, and the Council of Trent made the doctrine official church doctrine. And we won't take time to read that, but again, stuff's coming along here. Hundreds and even over a thousand years after the church began, all these changes. How can we be making all these changes? Because we don't have a proper respect and regard for the infallible inspired word of God. All right. And so we're seeing things that came along well after the first century. Now, either the church is fluid and dynamic, and you can change anything you want, anytime you want, or else it's fixed and rigid and should be just like the church you read in the New Testament. We're seeing folks here who have a view that you can change it, and we see the changes that have, have been introduced. All right, let's move to something. Let's get off the Catholics for a while. If the Catholics feel like we've been beating up on them, I'm sure, tonight, and I guess we have. But let's talk about some other changes that people brought in because they didn't respect the Scriptures. Let's talk about the history of instrumental music in churches. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would not know that instrumental music is something that came along way later. Much Later. In fact, church historians agree unanimously that early Christians worshipped by uh, a cappella singing, yeah. no instrumental accompaniment. In fact, they even indicate there was an interesting break between Jewish practice in their synagogues and the church when it began in the fact that they did not use instruments. It's in the root of the word a cappella. Yeah. A cappella means as in the church. Yeah. And so a cappella singing, it was so common that there was uh, no instruments was so common that it, it, it engendered a word. Yeah. Um, notice this. This is from a man named Dickinson. Uh, he was quoted in a book by M.C. Curfees called Instrumental Music in the Worship. Uh, he says, quote, We know that instruments performed an important function in the Hebrew temple service and in the ceremonies of the Greeks. At this point, however, a break was made with all previous practice, and although the lyre and the flute were sometimes employed by the Greek converts, as a general rule, the use of instruments in worship were condemned. Many of the church fathers, speaking of religious song, make no mention of instruments. Others, like Clement of Alexandria and St. Chrysostom, refer to them only to denounce them. Church historians say it wasn't so. All right. Lars Qualden, in A History of the Christian Church, said singing formed an essential part of the Christian worship, but it was in unison and without musical accompaniment. George Klingman, in Church History for Busy People, wrote, The earliest reference to the use of the flute and the harp is in the second century. At Alexandria, Clement forbade the use of the flute on the ground that it was too worldly and substituted the harp. Ambrose is said to have introduced instrumental music in the West in the fourth century. Unbelievable. Uh, D.E. Howard in What is the Church of Christ wrote, In the Greek church, the organ never came into use, but after the 8th century, it became common in the Latin church. Notice this, not, however, without opposition from the side of the monks. Uh, And then here's one that I, here's a a historical note that I've always thought was so interesting. If you were to talk to, uh, how much time we got? We're running out of time, are we? You got six minutes. If, if, If we were to talk to people in the Baptist church today, we got lots of friends and relatives and neighbors who are in Baptist churches all around here in the South. And if we were to ask a Baptist, 
have Baptist churches always used instrumental music? I think without exception. They would say, oh, of course we've always used instrumental music. Notice this quote. This is from a man named Posey who wrote the history of the Baptist church in the lower Mississippi Valley. That's us. We, us down here in the south. We're in the lower Mississippi Valley. So here's what the Baptists practiced in the lower Mississippi Valley. For years, the Baptists fought the introduction of instrumental music into the churches. Installation of the organ brought serious difficulties in many churches. Yeah. Wait, there weren't any Baptist churches in the lower Mississippi <clears throat> Valley until the last 200 years yeah. maximum. Yeah. So sometime within the last century or so, Baptists have brought in instrumental music. But it caused a lot of trouble when they did it. Most Baptists today say, oh, we always had, always had instrumental music. No, no, you didn't. It's something that was added in later. Now, again, is a church fluid and dynamic? You could change anything you want, and if you get to change anything you want, then anything has to go. Or church needs to be doing things like it did in the first century, and we can see here from history that instrumental music was not a part of worship so, in the first century. So if everybody agrees they didn't use it in the first century, by what justification would we add it in now? There is no justification for adding it in. Yeah. Now, that's the point we're making in our whole study tonight. Here's some interesting quotes from some people that, that their names will be recognizable. John Calvin said, Musical instruments in the celebration of praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense and lighting of lamps and the restoration of other shadows of the law. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in the noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostles is far more pleasing. Yeah. Here's Martin Luther. An organ in the worship of God is an ensign of Baal. Uh-huh. Here's John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither seen nor heard. Yeah. And Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous English Baptist preacher, said, I'd as soon pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. Okay. I mean, again, what we're emphasizing in that is that lots of changes have come along. And the only reason why you would change things like that is because people think that the Bible is not the sole guide and 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 authority. Because for you religion. can't find it in the New Testament. We don't see it uh, being pr- practiced by the first century church. It is a later addition. Now, again, if, it, if the church gets to change, things get to change over time, then I can change what I want. You yeah. can change what you want. But, and but you cannot. You've opened the door. You can't put your foot down. If you're allowed to change what you want, then you got to let me change what I want. Right. Like you said, there's no stopping. You've place. started down that slippery slope. Finally, one more thing to talk about. Here's one more kind of in, uh, innovation that came along. When did the idea of salvation by faith only, when was that first taught? We know that that's a very common thing in our day, people teaching that you're saved by faith only. Chris answered, I'm not sure, but I bet it was during the Protestant Refor- Reformation, he says. It was. You're right, Chris. Martin Luther is credited with first teaching that around 1510. So here's something 1,500 years about after the the gospel was first preached on the day of Pentecost, Martin Luther comes up. Martin Luther was actually reacting to what he saw as terrible abuses in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was basically teaching salvation by meritorious works. And Luther was completely turned off by that, and so he went really to the opposite extreme and said, uh, faith only. Yeah. Uh, we deny we, we we deny salvation by meritorious works, mm-hmm. but we also deny salvation by faith only. We we believe salvation is by faith, the faith that leads us to obedience. Right, and without obedience, we're not uh, Christ uh, followers. We are not uh, pleasing to God, and we won't will not be saved. And so again, there you have documentation that shows this doctrine of faith only is something that wasn't in the first century. It was an addition. So again, if the church gets to change, if the teachings get to change, which teachings get to change and which ones don't. And a lot of folks turned off by the acceptance of homosexuality and homosexual marriage in the religious community. But um, it's really just the, one more thing. That's right. The ground has been fertile and uh, the errors have been propagated for years on end. And there's really no grounds to say it's you can't do it now because we've accepted so many other things. Started uh, years ago when churches started accepting divorce for any cause, abandoned the scriptural teaching for divorce and the structure of the family, and so now those uh, those uh, things have taken root, and we're seeing the fruits of them in the modern day apostasy. And so we see the uh, the error with uh, allowing these things to change. 
Nick, uh, we haven't talked to you as much as we should have tonight. Any other thoughts uh, on that end tonight? Well, anytime men uh, abandon the Scripture as their source of authority of what God has given to us, uh, then you're going to have all the innovations. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of different thinking. And, right. and the only place to stop is to stop with the Scripture. You know, say we're going to go back to the Bible. We're going to do Bible things in Bible ways. Uh, we're going to be true to the Word of God. That's that's the only thing we can do. All right. Good discussion tonight. Appreciate our listeners. Well, we can't really thank them for participating, but you did listen tonight, and so we're glad you listened. If you got any questions about what we've said, we'd like to encourage you to contact us anytime. Questions at collegeu.com. Remember, July 20th, 21st, 2015. If you're anywhere within driving distance, or even if you're not, we encourage you to come to the Community Bible Study on the Christian and Islam. It should be very informative. We hope to be there. I'd appreciate your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. Nick, thank you for being here two weeks in a row. Thank you for having me. Please tell me it won't be three weeks in a row. <laughs> I think we're I think we're going home tomorrow. No, I'm just kidding. But we're I'm going to, I'm going to be looking online to see if I can uh, hear Bob's presentation. Hey, well, we will, uh, Lord willing, just as just as quick as we possibly can. We'll have the uh, Nick Nick's going to be too far away to drive here for our community Bible study, but we'll have that all that on our website just as quickly as we can get it up. All right. Appreciate you being here tonight, and we encourage you to make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.